African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the rights to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. Good morning, good morning, welcome to yet another interactive installment of African Dialogue. You tuned in to Channel Africa, your gateway to Africa, bringing you news from an African perspective. I'm your host, Ayandam Kwanazi, and we're currently on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. Now, on the program today, we're looking at the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report and basically looking at ways to accelerate progress against climate change. What does the report say? What are the consequences? especially for a continent like Africa, which has been also deemed as um, one of the continents that's in great danger if we do not um, do anything about climate change between now and the next 12 years. Now, to discuss our um, our program today, I'd just li- like, like to introduce uh, our guests. We have Glenn Tyler, who's the SA team leader for Global Grassroots Climate Movement um, called 350.org. Are you there, Glenn? Hi, Andrew. Yes, I'm here. And also we have Dr. Jim Taylor, who's an associate of Wildlife and Environment Society of South Africa. Good morning to you. Hi, good morning, Ayanda and everybody. Um, just before we get into the discussion, I'd like you to listen to this clip um, by one of the reports from Connor Lennon of UN, uh, UN News. When the Paris Climate Agreement was signed in 2015, almost all nations agreed to come together to limit global warming to below 2 degrees Celsius, but ideally to keep it below 1.5 degrees. Last week, Monday, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released an exhaustively researched report on the effects of 1.5 degrees and 2 Celsius increase in global temperatures. The report warns that we have only 12 years to make global energy infrastructure changes. Connor Lennon of UN News tells us more. What difference does half a degree make? Back when the Paris Climate Agreement was signed by world leaders in 2015, there wasn't a clear answer to that question. So the scientists of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, which provides governments with scientific, objective information, was tasked with coming up with one. And on Monday, at a press conference in Incheon, South Korea, it was released. We were invited to prepare this report three years ago because there was not enough knowledge on the subtle differences between global warming of 1.5 and 2 degrees. And I'm impressed by the amount of new knowledge, 6,000 publications assessed in the report, and what comes out is a clear benefit in limiting warming to 1.5 compared to 2 degrees to avoid multiple risks. And I want to stress risks associated, for instance, with heat waves, heavy rainfall events, drought in many regions. Climate scientist and co-chair of the report, Valérie Masson-Delmotte, on the mammoth task accomplished by the IPCC. The organisation was keen to highlight the benefits of keeping global warming to 1.5 degrees and of creating economies that benefit all without harming the environment. And now it's over to the countries to digest the contents of the report and consider their responses. The report will be presented to governments at the upcoming UN Climate Change Conference which takes place in Poland this December. And that report, of course, by Connor Lennon of UN News. Now let's start with you, Glenn. What were the key findings that stood out for you as a global grassroots movement? 
Thanks, Ayanda. I think one of the biggest findings for us is um, that we've known about the urgency um, to take action on climate change for a long time. But what this report highlights is that it's even more urgent than we initially thought. With only 12 years um, to act to make sure that we don't exceed 1.5 degrees, we really have to do everything in our power to do that. And that means everyone. It means people in any sort of sphere or sector, um, sector of the economy or sphere of life in South Africa really need to do as much as they can. Um, and something particular that stood out for me was the need to cut the coal consumption globally mm-hmm. by two-thirds by 2030. So that's, that's 12 years. That means a child that's starting school today, by the time they meet, reach matric, we would have to cut by two-thirds the amount of coal that we use. And in South Africa, that's a huge challenge, but also a huge opportunity for us, you know, with our electricity being so based on, on coal power. Mm. Um, Jim, what do you have to say with, with some of the points there that are raised by, by Glenn, especially with the coal? Yeah, I think Glenn really hit the nail on the head. Um, first of all, it's much more urgent than people had been understanding in the past. And the idea of 12 years to turn around the whole way people are living on Earth is a, is a dramatic challenge um, under any circumstances. So I think that point's really made, well made. Of course, coal um, in South Africa is really a, a moot point because so much of our electricity, so much of our energy is generated from coal Mm. Um, it's convenient, it's, it's cheap, it's good quality, and it's something we've got used to. Um, and the place for coal is to be left on the ground. Um, it's only because we've got coal that's unburnt, or in other words, fixed carbon, that human and plant and animal life on Earth is possible. Um, we don't want to reverse the, that possibility and end up on a planet that's not habitable. So mm. that's how serious the coal, the coal issue really is. Mm-hmm. Now, now also, Jim, there's the risk of livestock um, involved here. You know, should we not mitigate against these, these, this impact of, of climate change? Is it not so? Yes, of course it is. And livestock um, in the form of beef farming and mm. many of the practices um, that we have to produce food for people are very, very detrimental to the planet as a whole. They destroy habitats, they destroy ecosystems, and few people realize that it's actually those habitats, um, the catchments that produce water, the, the biodiversity that produces fresh air and um, is, is what we really depend on. So as we put more and more into um, livestock farming, we place everybody at risk going forward. Now, I'm sure, um, Glenn, you, you agree that from a grassroots level, you're trying to mobilize communities, mobilize the public, but there's also the part of, you know, some political will. We see that um, American President Donald Trump is not really supportive of the idea or maybe doesn't really believe that global warming in less than 12 years will be a huge um, global phenomenon. What do we say to, to, to people like who think like uh, uh, Donald Trump, perhaps does it not then reverse the gains that we're trying to make? Uh, absolutely. I mean, we we need to tell our elected leaders. Um, you know, we need to show them that we understand the urgency of the situation, and that we hold them to account. We hold them accountable for their actions, for the decisions they're taking, 
And it's extremely clear that we cannot put any more money into financing fossil fuels. Um, we cannot afford to build new infrastructure, and we must transition to 100% renewable energy. Those three things are absolutely crucial. And as you say, I mean, this is the work that 350 Africa um, mm. and 350.org does in terms of trying to mobilize people and to empower them and support them to hold our leaders to account. I mean, as it is in South Africa, the, the development bank of Southern Africa, and I emphasize the development part, is, is considering funding a new coal-fired power station, which in this day and age, and given the IPCC report that came out on Monday, is absolute insanity. And this is um, and it's essentially our money, and it's money that needs to be spent on developing um, our country, on providing energy access to people who don't have it, but ensuring that when we are providing electricity, it's clean electricity, it's coming from renewable energy. I think mm-hmm. that's um, some of the key things. And if we can help people um, you know, speak for sort of truth to power, um, we will do that. Just last week, we have been delivering um, copies of the IPCC report to local leaders all over the country to try and show them that this is extremely urgent to highlight the lessons in the in the report and to get them to take action. Mm. And and how are people on the ground receiving this? Um, do people really understand the nitty gritties of of climate change, Glenn? I think they do. I mean, it can get very uh, convoluted and scientific very quickly, but the basics are clear. And, you know, it's not like we're talking about something that's happening, you know, in a distant future. The impacts of climate change are happening all around us all the time. I mean, um, I'm based in Cape Town, and we have just come through a horrendous uh, drought, which we just narrowly managed to avoid the taps being turned off. And throughout the country, water scarcity is increasingly a problem. You know, for workers who are working outside, uh, agricultural workers, there's a much uh, higher um, Mm. prevalence of heat waves and extreme temperatures. And people are are experiencing that. They're seeing these patterns changing. They're seeing natural patterns changing. They're seeing, I mean, even the cost of uh, food going up. All of these are sort of indicative of what's happening in our world. And, yeah, creates the, the urgency that we're seeing when we try to, to mobilize people. It's not something that we're having to go into a big debate about. You just don't hear people mm. um, on the ground denying climate change anymore. They're, they're very much on board, and I think they're now just looking to our leaders to take action. Um, and, yeah, we're also trying to, to help them take action in their own lives as well. Mm. Um, now, now, Jim, we also know that, uh, you know, the impact of climate change will negatively affect the the economy and particularly Africa we are we want to be the the hub of 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 the rest of the world the breadbasket but also we also relying a lot on our agriculture what kind of impact will climate change have if we don't deal with it on our agriculture well the impact will be absolutely dramatic and it'll be destructive to everybody you know uh, Africa having enormous of its resource base. Um, we know it's for agriculture, but um, the risk to that from change just makes everything, everything much more vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And as exploits um, fossil fuel mm-hmm. um, um, resources, so so that puts at risk the idea of agriculture. And what I enjoyed about the report is mm. points out that 
um, we need to reduce the, the emission sustainable and equitable society. So in a way, the report is actually quite pro-poor. You know, it's, it's for people who, who struggle, as Ben says, people who can't afford air-conditioned offices. Hello, Jim. Okay, Hello, I'm still here. Hi. Can you move around a little bit? You seem to be breaking. I'm losing, a, I'm losing you a little bit there. Okay. Is okay. that a little bit much better? better? Yes, much better. Yeah, so what we're realizing is that, um, you know, it's in a way it's a pro-poor report because mm. it's people who can't afford the air conditioning and the um, expensive high-carbon footprints mm. um, who suffer first. And, of course, everyone will be vulnerable in the end, but... Um, in, in, in the meantime, economies and jobs actually depend on on us reducing these emissions. Mm. And, you know, it's often said that there are no jobs on a dead planet. Mm. And we shouldn't be moving towards a dead planet um, in this way if we value um, the ability to live well on Earth and have an economy that can can depend on the life support systems that the environment provides. Mm. We don't want to be messing those things up. <laughs> now, is there a way that government can introduce ways to move around, uh, move away from fossil fuel and coal plants? I mean, we've got coal plants here in South Africa, yet we're trying to also um, reduce uh, the impact or of, of, of climate change. But, you know, how can, can government maybe introduce some type of tax penalties for, for companies? What can governments do? Well, well, I think Glenn also made the point that we could go towards renewable energy, and mm. renewables generally involve many more people. So they are actually a job-creating mechanisms, and they're not just one big centralized system of providing energy. So I think investing in renewables would be really great. And up until quite recently, most um, government funding has gone into actually um, facilitating and and sponsoring the fossil fuel economy. So, um, and that that's crazy when we need to really mm. um, it, it, it divest in those economies and build on the renewable energy ones. That's true. And could I add to that? Yes, yes, please do, Glenn. Just, just to say that, uh, you know, just to build on what Jim has already been saying, which I completely agree with, the other thing to consider is that, you know, this transition, we, we often in this sector talk about the energy transition, and what we mean is the transition from uh, electricity coming from fossil fuel sources mm. to electricity coming from renewable energy and, and clean energy. Yes. And I think this transition is happening globally, and it's happening incredibly quickly. So it's not a case of, you know, whether this will happen or not in South Africa. It's going to happen. You know, renewable energy is cheaper than energy um, from coal or from fossil fuels. So, you know, it's an economic certainty. It's going to happen and it will happen. And what we need to do in South Africa is we need to make sure this transition is a just transition. We need to get out ahead of it and make sure that it's not extremely... um, hurtful and and really um, hard for people in fossil fuel industries, we need to make sure that um, we get out ahead of it and we make sure that people who are currently employed in coal mines and in coal-fired power stations have access to training and all sorts of other supports to transition them into um, an economy that relies on renewable energy.
mm. because that's where that's where we're moving in in South Africa. Um, and I think you know one of the, the key things here is to make sure we're not funding additional fossil fuel infrastructure, yes. which will essentially be a waste of money. It will become a, a stranded asset. Um, you know, money that's sunk into a big project that we then can't actually reap the benefits of. And, you know, financing power stations like Tabometi and Kanyisa mm. to new coal-fired power stations is completely ridiculous. In fact, lots of experts are actually saying that we shouldn't even be finishing um, some of the um, parts of Madupi and Kusida, sorry, Madupi that aren't finished already. So mm. it really does require us to think quickly and to act even even quicker to make mm. sure that we're not putting any more momentum or impetus into fossil fuels, and we're really getting behind this renewable energy transition that's coming. Would 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 that mean that um, abandoning the the continuation of those of those plants, uh, uh, Glenn? Absolutely. I mean it. It's beyond a doubt, you know. I mean, if, if the IPCC is saying that we need to um, reduce our coal consumption by two-thirds mm. by 2030, that's all coal consumption. You know, so that means that if we produce 90% of our electricity in South Africa from coal, that's a massive change in our electricity infrastructure. So there's absolutely no way that we can continue to be building new coal infrastructure when what they're saying is that already the plants that have a current sort of useful lifetime beyond the time when we should be reducing our coal consumption. We have to start right now. We have to um, can stop building any new infrastructure mm. and really start transitioning the current infrastructure away from fossil fuels to renewable, clean and cheap energy. Mm. Well, then, that's the voice of Glenn Tyler, and he's from the grassroots uh, climate movement called 350.org. We're also speaking to Dr. Jim Taylor, who's an associate of Wildlife and Environment Society of South Africa. We are speaking about the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which released its report last week. Let's go for a quick break, and we'll continue after this. Dr. Amalia Gonyas Malka, welcome to Womanity, Women in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender based violence. Joining us on the line today from Mauritius is a Dr. Amina Gurib Fakim, who was the sixth president and the first female president of the Republic of Mauritius. Be sure to join Channel Africa at 10 o'clock Central African time on Thursday for this interesting episode of Womanity. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Are you looking for opportunities to network with Africa's business leaders? Do you want to engage with movers and shakers and participate in master classes presented by industry experts? Then, here's your personal invitation to attend the fourth annual Africa Women Innovation and Entrepreneurship Forum and exhibition taking place on the 8th and 9th of November in Cape Town, South Africa. If you want to register, then visit www.awiefforum.org. Again, 
www.awiforum.org. If you cannot make the event, then don't worry. You can follow it through live broadcasts on Channel Africa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Well, welcome back to African Dialogue. We come to you every Monday to Thursday at 1100 hours Central African time. You're also welcome to interact with us via Twitter at Channel Africa, Facebook. We can simply SMS your views to plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. If you want to email us, do so at info at channelafrica.org. Now we're talking to Glenn Taylor, who's the SA team leader for a glass, a grassroots climate movement, a global grassroots climate, climate movement, 350.org. We're also talking to Dr. Jim Taylor, who's an associate of Wildlife and Environment Society of South Africa. Now, let's try to to move our discussion forward, um, Dr. Taylor. As Africa right now, what should our leaders be focusing on in terms of trying to to ensure that when 12 years comes, we are not in, you know, in the pits? Well, Well, surprisingly, Africa has an enormous potential um, in the whole climate change scenario. Um, Many of our resources are still uh, under the ground and are still potentially there to support life, whereas many more developed countries have actually overexploited their resources, and that's putting their economies at risk. So potentially Africa has an enormous role to play in the whole climate change scenario. So If leaders are wise, then they're going to say, let's look towards a a sustainable future where we don't do what um, over-harvest our natural resource base, we over-exploit the the fossil fuels, and then contribute to the the demise of the planet, if you like, Mm -hmm. instead to work um, much more wisely in a way that doesn't compromise our future by, by overexploiting the resources. So it, it is a bit of a catch-22 for many leaders who are very anxious to fast-track an economy um, and um, an electricity-based economy that's um, in itself exploiting fossil fuels um, when, when they should be looking at a, a more sustainable future. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm very optimistic about Africa's role, but it will require the political will and a leadership that lives for the long term and not short-term gains. Mm. Now, now, deforestation also accounts for about 15% of total greenhouse gas emissions. How do we slow down the pace of, you know, cutting down our forests? Um, because it also then affects our wildlife, doesn't it, Dr. Jim? Well, it does. And wildlife is really um, uh, symptomatic of the whole problem because actually it's the biodiversity that gives us our life support systems. In other words, we Mm. need intact plants and animals that can nourish um, the environment and represent um, a healthy environment. If we destroy the plants and animals around our rivers and streams um, and deforest, um, cut down the forests, then we disrupt the life support systems that keep Mm. everything actually alive. So that that would be a way to look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, Glenn, what's what's your take on Africa's role um, in the fight against um, <laughs> climate change? Yeah, we've got a, a huge opportunity um, in Africa 
in the in the fight against climate change, and that opportunity is to to leapfrog some of our existing um, electricity and energy um, infrastructure to renewable energy. So, um, energy access is one of the the big sort of development goals in in Africa, and we're able to achieve that by um, using renewable energy. In fact, renewable energy is probably better suited to energy access across Africa than sort of a big um, a big centralized grid uh, powered by fossil fuels. Mm. So I think there are opportunities for us. And, you know, as Jim said, our, our leaders really need to um, have the political will and take leadership on that to ensure that happens. Um, there are obviously great risks that the, the continent is, is facing. And, you know, I think we need to also say with a very clear voice um, that, you know, Africa is, has a much smaller responsibility for the, um, the threat of climate change. And so we also need to see um, sort of, you know, it's a bad word, but developed countries taking mm. their sort of share of the, of, the, um, of the blame for this and making sure that they are shutting down their own fossil fuel-powered um, grids and fossil fuel industries um, as quickly as possible. Mm. Now, do we know which African countries are not doing enough to change their whole energy infrastructure? Well, I think you know, <laughs> we have to point the finger at ourselves in South Africa. I mean, South mm. Africa is really, um, you know, one of the more developed, uh, has one of the more developed energy infrastructures. But as we've said a number of times, it is almost entirely um, dependent on coal, which, of course, is a massive polluter, a massive contributor to, to climate change. So I think, you know, we really need to take a long look at ourselves in South Africa and make sure that we are leading this transition because, just as I said, you know, that Africa needs to look to the, um, the West and their responsibility for climate change. I think other African countries are going to similarly look at um, South Africa and say, you know, that we've been incredibly responsible for a lot of the impacts that we're already seeing and that will only intensify. So I think South Africa has a big, um, a big uh, role to play. Um, but then, you know, just going back to the idea of deforestation and, um, you know, the amount of uh, carbon that forests store, um, countries with big forests like the, the DRC um, also have a role to make sure that those forests remain intact and contribute their um, carbon storage and making sure that they're not the cutting of, of those forests on contributing to climate change. Mm. Um, I'd like to introduce Apolos Nwafo who's just joined us from Nairobi, Kenya. He's from Oxfam. He's the Pan-Africa Director. Can you hear us well, Apolos? Yes, thank you. How are you? Thank you. Well, well, thank you. We just got into the discussion already. Um, our two panelists have really given the impression of the IPCC report, given some of what they would think would help, um, you know, increase or accelerate the progress against climate change. Um, what's your take uh, on the on the report, and where does Africa stand um, as we speak? Uh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, actually, I think um, the report um, um, is very objective uh, to a certain extent because then it um, it sort of explains the situation. Um, that we're facing and um, the, the tragedy that uh, the planet faces by 2030 if no action is taken. Um, but I think it could have been um, more stronger in its call to action uh, and holding 
uh, rich countries accountable, uh, and of course, very wealthy individuals who, who practically are responsible for um, uh, the climate change challenges that we're facing, particularly in Africa, uh, because of uh, their actions and the, the global financial architecture you know, that um, uh, makes Africa bear the brunt of um, the climate change impacts that the world is facing. And yet, you know, Africa was not responsible for mm. um, the greenhouse gas emissions that, that the world uh, is experiencing today. Now, the report says we have 12 years to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees. Um, Apollos, is that a realistic goal to set? Is it achievable? Um, it is, but then we will need to take very um, uh, revolutionary action, you know, to make that achievable. So if, if, you, if you remember, if the report is saying that if nothing happens by 2030, you know, we're going, to, we're going to be in a disastrous world. And let's also not forget that by 2030, uh, according to, um, as agreed by all member states of the United Nations, um, mm-hmm. we've agreed to end extreme poverty by 2030. So 2030 seems to be um, um, the, the, the point where everyone is hoping to see a better world. Um, that's, that's less than 15, of course, that's 12 years from now, because we're already three years into the SDGs. Uh, and so this ties up with it. Um, um, it is achievable, but we will need to make sure that we, we have an ambitious plan that is sustainably financed. You know, uh, mm-hmm. But the challenge remains is that most of the countries in the continent do not have the resources you know, uh, to, to finance the mitigation and adaptation strategy. Mm. But then that there's a political will, Apollos, from African leaders? Um, um, I, I think to a certain extent we've seen some political will, but, you know, more needs to be done. Um, I, I mean, all the African countries who signed up to the Paris Agreement, none of them have pulled out, like, you know, we know one or two countries uh, have pulled out from the Paris Agreement for very, uh, um, very, you know, if, if I'll use the phrase, you know, issues of national interest, you know, um, but to the detriment of um, the global south, you know, particularly Africa. And some of these countries were responsible, you know, for uh, the, the greenhouse gas emissions that we uh, that have impacted on the lives of people, particularly the poorest and excluded. African governments have made, um, um, they signed up to the Paris Agreement, they've come up with some continental strategies and policies. So, for example, you know, we've got a climate change office at the EU, you know, um, and there's also initiatives like the Great Green Wall Initiative um, by the African Union. There's also uh, the Africa Risk Capacity, you know, and, and a few others. But um, um, at the national level, we're beginning to see that a lot of countries are still um, at the stages of what we call the INEC, that is the uh, the... Uh, intended national um, uh, uh, contribution to mitigating uh, the, the climate change impact. None of them have turned that document around to a confirmed NDC that can then be financed through national budgets. You know, uh, and uh, there seems to be very little awareness. You know, so that that puts to question the, the political will by a number of our governments.
Thank you there, uh, Apollos. That's the voice of Apollos Nwafo, Oxfam Pan-Africa Director from Nairobi, Kenya. I'd like to go for the last break and then we'll have our final uh, say from all our panelists. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it was one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African Time. 1,000 African Voices with me, Awurengwi C on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective. Guess what? You can now listen to Channel Africa using Silozi, Chinyanja, Kiswahili, Portuguese, French and English, giving you an African perspective. Hi, my name is Tandalunyan Zovo and you are listening to Channel Africa. We are Channel Africa from an African perspective. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. This is African Dialogue and I'm Ayanda Mkwanazi. Now, Dr. Jim Taylor, let's just move this sort of wrap this this conversation up. I mean, we have uh, in no doubt mentioned that we need to move away from fossil fuel. We need to electrify um, 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 everything. And, you know, just from an individual level now, if we bring it down to the grassroots level, what do individuals do in the meantime? I think that many of us are starting to realize that it's actually things like the food we eat um, that actually contributes to um, um, climate change risks. So uh, everything we involved in as individuals will need to change in time, um, including the food we eat, the way we travel, and the kind of lifestyles we live on Earth. So it isn't going to be an easy transition, but those people who are taking on a more sustainable lifestyle are quite proud of that and mm. are starting to live in a way that doesn't compromise other people living on earth. But, you know, if society as a whole doesn't change, you can't blame the individual and download the responsibility. We need to work cooperatively with government, with civil society, and not just try and blame the individual. So it is really a, a composite sort of systemic solution that, that is required. Mm. Glenn, your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I think we, we can all take our own um, individual parts. Um, but like I've, I've mentioned before, I think the real power comes from when we come together uh, as citizens and stand up to those in power, so obviously use our votes, but also pressure them to take the action that needs to be taken, that, that's very clear that it needs to be taken, 
and there are amazing um, organizations doing this sort of work, you know, from uh, WESA, but also the Life After Coal um, Coalition, um, which is made up of the Center for Environmental Rights, Groundwork, and Earth Life Africa, um, doing amazing work in South Africa. And obviously, if you aren't able to join one of these organizations and, and get behind them, 350africa.org um, would also love to um, help people get active and mm. hold their leaders to account. Um, and they can find out, people can find out more information on 350africa.org is the, the website. And we'd love to support people in fighting climate change and in making sure that we have a, a livable future. Apollos, what are your final thoughts? And also just you know, reflecting on the upcoming UN Climate Change uh, Conference in December, what do African leaders especially need to take into this conference room when they meet to argue about planet Earth? Thank you. Um, I think we need to know that time is short. You know, but there's still a chance of keeping to 1.5 degrees of, war- of warming, you know, which is um, which is not uh, the ideal situation. But you know, it will keep the world safe, um, and that's why at Oxfam we're calling for an increased, comfortable and accountable climate finance from rich countries that supports you know. Um, uh, the poorest of the poor. So, for example, in agriculture, like small-scale farmers, and particularly women, you know, to realize their right to, for example, food security and climate justice. Mm. At the COP24 in, in December, it's important that our African governments are able to stand up and demand much more accountability from the rich countries. But we must also go there with a realistic action plan, you know, that shows that Africa is ready to take leadership and take responsibility for its mitigation and adaptation strategy. Uh, we shouldn't go there uh, to become beggars. No, we should go there to demand accountability and make sure that this is a shared responsibility between Africa and the rest of the world, particularly the global north. For all our guests giving us their time, their insights, we do appreciate it. That was the voice of Apollos Nwafo, who's Oxfam Pan-Africa Director. We're calling him all the way from Nairobi, Kenya. We also have Glenn Tyler, who's the SA Team Leader for Global Grassroots Climate Movement, 350.org. And also Dr. Jim Taylor, as an Associate of Wildlife and Environment Society of South Africa. Thank you so much, gentlemen, for giving us your time. Thank you. Thank you. The time is now 11.43. We're going to have our econ news in the next few minutes. But let's listen to the song while we are waiting for our econ desk. Mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers, do what we can. 